Please turn with me in your Bibles to the 8th chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 8, and as we work through the Gospel of John this morning, we come to verses 31 through 47. Please give your attention to God's holy and errant word. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. If you've been around a while, you've probably heard my testimony at some time. You know I grew up in a, what we would call, liberal church, a church that wasn't uh, built upon the authority of Scripture, didn't preach the gospel. One thing I remember about being raised in that church, there's songs that stick in my head that we sang, but there's one in particular is kind of a uh, sing-songy ditty that uh, never been able to get out of my head, partly because of the folk tune it was uh, sung to. It's called Let There Be Peace on Earth. Have you ever heard that song? Really popular when I was a kid. Not Thankfully, don't hear it much anymore. Let me... Just read to you, I won't sing, but let me read to you the lyrics of that song. Let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. Let there be peace on earth, the peace that was meant to be. With God as our Father, brothers all are we. Let me walk with my brother in perfect harmony. Kumbaya. No, no, I'm sorry, that, that, it didn't end with that. 
if you're really listening to the words there, you know that's about as profound as the Beatles singing All We Need Is Love, and it's about as effective in bringing about world peace as those bumper stickers that we used to see that said, visualize world peace. But it wasn't just a harmless little ditty either. It's heretical. It should not be sung in any church. Matter of fact, later on, after the Lord opened my eyes and I really studied the scriptures, understood the gospel, I did a little research to find out where that song come from. And it was actually written in the mid-50s by a couple for a youth retreat, but not a Christian youth retreat, a, a inter-religion youth retreat. And the purpose was to get the teenagers standing around a fire, holding hands, as they were wont to do back then at camps, and singing this song in an effort to indoctrinate them to break down all religious differences. And that was the vision of peace on earth that they were trying to accomplish through that song. Two main heresies in that song. First of all, the idea that we are all God's children. The Bible does not teach that. And secondly, that peace on earth begins within us when it really begins in the saving work of Jesus Christ for us. I, for, throughout most of my adult life, have been a fan of the group U2, and I've really, in many ways, even though I wince at times at uh, things that Bono, the, the lead singer, says, and uh, you know things that he does, in general, though, I have come to really respect him as someone who is in a a huge place of exposure, a great platform. He's known uh, worldwide, and he's had some impact worldwide. And I appreciate the fact that in that very difficult position, he has kept a fairly consistent testimony as a public Christian. But there's one movement that he tried to get started, and uh, I still see it once in a while, called the Coexist Movement. I'm sure you've seen the bumper stickers for that, where it spells out the word coexist with all the icons and symbols from different world religions. And, you know, in a sense, I want to give Bono, the, in his motivations for that, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. And there's a sense in which I agree with what that movement's trying to do, which is to say, if we're in different religions, we shouldn't be killing each other. We shouldn't be oppressing one another. We shouldn't be abusing one another. And we should be able to enter into respectful dialogue with one another. And with all that, I agree. But I'm afraid that so many people misunderstand the message and really what they hear when U2 or Bono talks about coexist. They really hear the same thing that that song that I grew up singing is all about. With God as our Father, brothers all are we. Let peace begin with us on earth. One of my favorite songs of you 2 is probably one of their earliest ones called Sunday Bloody Sunday. If you know the song, you know that it was written about violence between religious groups in Northern Ireland. But there's one lyric in that song. Let me read it to you. Maybe you've never noticed it before. It says, Jesus, Jew, Muhammad, it's true. All sons of Abraham. Father Abraham, look what we've done. You've pitted your son against your son. No more, no more, no more. Now, Bono wrote that when he was very young. And I want to give him the benefit of the doubt and say that's just sloppy theology. I don't know if he would write that lyric the same way today. But it's not 
true. Jews, Muslims, and Christians are not all children of Abraham. And really, that's the issue. As controversial, as objectionable as that may be for me to say in this cultural context, it's exactly what Jesus is saying in this passage, if you're reading carefully. It was the very issue that he was addressing. Who are the children of Abraham, and therefore, who are the children of God? That was the central issue in his ongoing debate, as we've been looking over these last couple chapters, the ongoing debate with the Jewish people. Who has the right to call themselves children of Abraham and therefore children of God? Now understand, Jesus, in all these dialogues, is talking to religious Jews, some of them leaders among the religious Jews. And to the Jews, basically the whole world was divided into two categories. People who were the descendants of Abraham, the family of Abraham, the Jewish people, the, the, the nation of Israel, and then the rest of the world. The covenant family of God, God's children, and then the pagans, the Gentiles, the heathen. That's how they viewed the world. And so last week when Jesus talked about he said, I am the light of the world, he's talking to a group of people who saw things and saw it in this terms, like the light is upon the Jewish people and the rest of the world, the Gentiles, are in darkness. And that was our simplistic understanding of who were the children of Abraham and who were the children of God and who were of the darkness. Matter of fact, you know, it's interesting, if you have a red-letter edition of the Bible, which I'm not a big fan of the red-letter edition, it's all God's word, but if you'll notice, the black lettering in a red-letter edition in the, has basically, in this passage, has the three comments that are made by the Jewish crowds around Jesus. In verse 33, they say, we are the offspring of Abraham. In verse 39, they say, Abraham is our father. And in verse 41, they say, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. So obviously, this was their main point. We are legitimate heirs of the promises to Abraham. We are God's family. We are God's children. Jesus, over the last couple of chapters, has been stressing over and over again, I am the eternal, unique, second person of the Trinity, the true Son of God. I have come from God, and I am going back to God shortly. And he says to these Jews... He says in verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. I hope that from a Jewish perspective, as we've reviewed it there for a second, you feel the weight of what Jesus is saying. That's a radical, harsh, unbelievably difficult thing for a Jewish person to hear. I'm not a child of Abraham. I'm not a child of God. I'm actually a child of the devil. That's what Jesus is saying here. In terms of spiritual paternity, and that's what we're talking about, who is your spiritual father, there are two possibilities, Jesus says. God is your father, your spiritual father, or the devil is your spiritual father. And everybody falls into one category or the other. I think it's really what Jesus meant when he said, I did not come to bring peace on earth, but division. And that's the division that he came to make clear. I mean, it's shocking enough in our cultural context for Jesus to talk about the devil as a personal, powerful, spiritual being. 
But to say that that devil has spiritual children in the world is also radical. But Jesus is even going beyond that, isn't he? Because he's talking to the Old Testament church here, so to speak. He's talking to faithful religious Jews. So he's saying that the devil not only has spiritual children out there in the world, out there in the darkness, the devil has spiritual children even among God's people in the church. And so I can't think of a much more important question for us in the church to ask than who are the children of God? Who is our spiritual father? Is there a spiritual paternity test that we can take that will help us to know who our spiritual father is? I think that in his debate here, that's essentially what Jesus is doing. Here are the characteristics of a true child of God. And I think think we all need this morning to ask ourselves these questions. Does this describe me? I'm actually, I'm not going to work through the the passage sequentially like I usually do. I'm actually going to jump around a bit in the passage, so stay with me. I'll try to try to keep you up with where I am. But I want to follow a logical progression because I want to present it really as what Jesus, I think, intends this dialogue to be, which is a spiritual paternity test in a sense of how do you know whether you really have God as your father, as your spiritual father or not? And so I'm actually going to go to the end of the text to begin, the end of the passage we read. And we're going to see that the first test is that God's true children hear the Father's word. It's that simple. God's true children hear the Father's word. Look at verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say, he says to these Jews? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. In verse 46, he goes on to say, If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the word of God, words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Now again, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He's come from God to give the truth to sinners like you and me. And he's saying to these people, the problem isn't with the message. And the problem isn't with the messenger. It's a problem of hearing. That's why they're not understanding. That's why they're not hearing the words that he's saying and accepting them. The reason for this communication breakdown between Jesus and these hearers is is spiritual deafness. And so we're reminded of one of the key principles of the Gospel of John that we keep coming back to over and over again. And that's the principle that he laid out before Nicodemus when he came to him that night. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless a man is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. Last week we saw that that what we call in theology regeneration, that New birth from above, that spiritual birth must take place in order for someone to see that Jesus is the light of the world. The reason that so many don't see that Jesus is the light of the world is because they are spiritually blind to that light. And here he's saying that that same spiritual birth is necessary in order for someone to be able to hear what God is saying to the world. You must be born again. You see, we're all born into this world with a severe handicap. And that handicap is spiritual blindness, spiritual deafness, 
and ultimately, in the language of the Apostle Paul, spiritual deadness. We are born spiritually dead, unresponsive to the Word of God and to the Spirit of God. And we will all remain in that state unless God does something to change it. He must take the initiative in order for any kind of dialogue between God and a sinner to take place. The Word of God is light. It is truth. It is life. And that is what our lives as individuals must be about. It must be about the Word of God. It's what our ministry in this congregation must always be about. It's the Word of God. It's the Word that brings truth and changes hearts and lives. But it must work with the Spirit, and that Spirit spirit must bring that new birth so that sinners like you and me can hear and understand what the Word is saying. Now, when you think of the ministry of the church, unlike Jesus, we are not perfect witnesses. Sometimes, when we tell others the truth about Jesus, there is a problem with the messenger. Our lives are filled with sin. We are lacking in boldness. We're lacking in diligence. We're lacking in clarity. Our faith is weak. There can be lots of problems with us as messengers. And sometimes there's even a problem with the message, not the message itself, but the way that we present the message. Sometimes we distort it. Sometimes we inadequately present it. But understand, and it's important that we understand in all of the witnessing and ministry that we do, that probably, I'll venture to say most of the time, that our words fall on deaf ears. It's not because of a problem with the messenger or the message. It's a problem of hearing. Because most of the people you interact with every day do not have that spiritual birth. They've not been regenerated. Their eyes have not been opened. Their ears have not been opened. And that's why prayer is so important. Our witness is not all about what we must do and what we must do better to get the word out. Our witness is also about what God must do to give this spiritual birth and open eyes and open ears so that we can impart the message to those who need to hear it. It's all about the word and the spirit, and that's why we must pray. And pray fervently as part of our ministry. God's true children hear the Father's word. Secondly, Jesus is saying, God's true children are free to obey the word. Go back to verse 32. There Jesus says that the true disciples will know the truth. They'll hear it and they'll know it. They'll receive it. And the truth will set you free. There is freedom in hearing the truth and receiving it. Freedom. Notice how the Jews respond to that. They say they're offended by that idea that they need to be set free in any way. Matter of fact, they go on to say, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Have they never read the Old Testament? Have they not looked out the window? We're talking about the Jews here, the Jews who were enslaved by the Egyptians. They were enslaved by the Babylonians. They are enslaved by the Assyrians. They are enslaved by the Persians. They were enslaved by the Greeks. They were enslaved, even as we speak here, in the first century, enslaved by the Romans. What do they mean, we've never been enslaved? Well, I think they're not talking about their social status or their political status. I think they're talking about their religious and spiritual status. Yes, we may have been enslaved by all these countries, but we have always had the truth. We have always had the word of God. We've always had the temple. We've always had the priesthood. We've always had the covenants. We are Abraham's children. We are God's children. 
We are free spiritually and religiously. And so then Jesus lays down another foundational principle. Again, he says, truly, truly. Every time Jesus says, truly, truly, pay very close attention. Always pay attention to what he says. But when he says, truly, truly, he's usually laying down a foundational principle about life. And this is what he says in verse 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. He's saying, as we're born into this world, we're all born into spiritual slavery. We are slaves to sin and slaves to death. In other words, he's saying, we are not sinners because we commit sins. He's saying we commit sins because we are sinners. To the very core of our being, as we're born into this world, we are born sinners. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says this, The mind that is set on the flesh, in other words, the natural state of the human mind, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The whole idea of free will is a myth. There is no free will as people are born into this world. Oh, yeah, we're free to do whatever we want to do, but there's the problem. We are not free to want anything. We are enslaved to sin. That's the nature we're born with. And that's why Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Saying you're not born again. Not only can you not hear my word and accept my teaching, but you are actually hostile to the truth and the light that I'm bringing. You're actually hostile to it. You want what the devil wants. What does the devil want? Well, he goes on to say the devil wants to destroy others and to deceive others. That's what the devil lives for. And no matter how cleaned up and nice and religious you look on the surface, and he is talking to nice religious people here, at the core of your being, if you're still a spiritually a child of the devil, then your whole goal is to exalt yourself, even if that takes destroying others, putting others down, and deceiving others so that you yourself might be glorified. That's the nature we're born with. Enslaved to that self-centeredness and to the lusts of the flesh. And so Jesus says, if you hear my words and you receive my words, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Real freedom. Not the kind of freedom that we talk about in politics. Not the kind of freedom that we talk about in foreign affairs. Because the world defines freedom as what? The freedom to do whatever I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it. That's what the world calls freedom. And as we saw, that is actually slavery. Slavery to the purposes of Satan and slavery to the sinful nature. Slavery to the lust of the flesh. The world might call it addiction, but it's still slavery, spiritually speaking. How do we know what's truly best for us? That's what freedom is. Freedom is the freedom to do what is best for us. To go after what really our life is about. What it should be about. What God created our life to be about. That's what freedom is. To enter into all the purposes, the good purposes that a sovereign and loving God has established for your life. That's what freedom is. And that's what obedience to the word is. 
You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Again, we're back to the Word of God. Let me read to you from uh, Romans chapter 6 again. Again, this is the whole thing Paul is dealing with in that section of Romans. And listen to what he says. But thanks be to God, speaking to believers, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. You see, we are meant to be dependent upon the Lord. And we are meant to be just dependent and to the point even of addiction, if that's even a proper use of the word, of needing the Lord, needing the truth, needing the light of God's word. That that's what real freedom looks like, because that's what produces Christ-likeness in us. The third test that Jesus gives us here of paternity. Who is your spiritual father? Thirdly, not only are we able to hear the word of God and receive it, not only are we freed from slavery and enabled to obey the word, but he goes on to say God's children continue to obey the father's word. Let me go back to the first thing Jesus says in the passage. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. There's a conclusive test. Not only that you hear, not only that you obey, but that you continue to obey. To abide means to remain in, to continue in. And that doesn't mean, you know, sitting in the corner under a light with your Bible, reading your Bible all day long. That's not what it means to remain in the Word or abide in the Word. It means to study the Word, to know the Word, and to apply the Word to every aspect of your life. To make the Word the guide for everything you think and say and do. To live in submission to the Word and there find the abundant life that Christ promises to His disciples and the true freedom. That's what it means to abide in the Word. Ongoing obedience and submission to the word. It actually helps to explain something that you might have been a little puzzled about if you're reading carefully at the beginning of the text. Matter of fact, last week we ended with verse 30. Go back to verse 30. It says there, as Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. And then verse 31 that we read this week says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. But then from that point on, the whole conversation goes sour. The whole debate gets very ugly, and the Jews become highly offended. So how can he be talking to people who believe in him, and actually they become so hostile to what he's saying? Well, we've seen already that often when John talks about people believing, he doesn't mean a genuine belief. He means a superficial discipleship. They started following Jesus. They started listening to Jesus. But ultimately, their hearts remained unchanged. And really, this whole section from chapter 7 through chapter 11 is about how Jesus lost his following. Remember? In chapter 6, he had this massive following. Tens of thousands of people were flocking after him. And then he fed the 5,000. And then he chased them all away with the teaching of the truth. And so that we're in the midst of his following dwindling down to the point where he's crucified and only a handful of people were still with him. So these people who called themselves disciples, they thought they were following Jesus. Actually, they were not true believers. And Jesus is saying to them, the proof that we are truly born again isn't only that we hear and that we are able and able to obey, but that we continue 
to obey, that we persevere in our faith in following Christ. Growing in obedience. It doesn't mean sinlessness. In 1 John, actually, this this Apostle John in his first letter says in chapter 3, verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. He's not talking there about sinlessness. He's talking about a total reorientation of life where you are growing in obedience, growing in intimacy with the Lord. Maybe sometimes it's three steps forward and two steps back, but you're over the long course, you are growing in obedience because that's what happens to true children of God who have been born again, who are given the ability to hear the word and given the freedom to obey the word is that they grow in that obedience because of the work of the spirit within them. Peace on earth does not begin with you and me. It begins with the saving work of God. And in Philippians 1, it says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. He will complete the work that he started you. He gave you new life if you're a true child of God, and he will bring that work of sanctification, of making you like Christ, to completion. There is great peace and joy in knowing that. It's his work, and he will finish it. And that brings me to the fourth test of paternity, of spiritual paternity, that God's true children obey the Father's word because they love the Son of God. It's why we obey. He's going to the motivation. Look at verse 42. If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God. You can't love God without loving Jesus. Again, a very unpopular message, but you cannot love the true creator God of the universe unless you love Jesus Christ. Because, as we saw last week in Hebrews 1, he is the radiance of, of the Father's glory and the exact imprint of his being. How could you love the Father without loving the exact imprint of his being and the radiance of his glory, which is who Jesus Christ is? That new birth that was given as a gift from above creates a new nature that not only hears and is freed to obey, but continues to obey because of love for the Redeemer, the one who gave his life on the cross, the one who died for our sins. Jesus says in chapter 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then interestingly, he switches it around in chapter 15, and he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. You can't separate the two. Obedience is love to Christ, and love to Christ is obedience. That's what it looks like for the true child of God. And it's that motivation for pursuing righteousness and holiness that separates the nice religious people who are working to please God from true children of God who have been saved and are resting in what Christ has done for them. And it's not a difference you readily see on the the surface. If you've ever had to look for a church in a new community, maybe some of you are here this morning doing that, looking for a new church in a community, I encourage you to not just visit us once, but to come back and visit us for several weeks, maybe a couple months, maybe several months. Because I hope what you'll find is that this is a biblical fellowship where the Spirit of God is at work changing people, where people really love Christ and are obeying Christ because they love him, and that you can't really know that until you get past the first few weeks or even months and really get to know people. Because what you find out is that this is not some legalistic, works-oriented religious gathering of religiously nice people. This is, this, this is the family of God. These are people that love the Lord 
And their obedience is driven by humble thankfulness and love, not by some kind of, of pride or works righteousness. But this is real gospel transformative work. That's something you only know over a period of time. Who is your father? Who is your spiritual father? Most important question that anyone can ask. There's only one spiritual paternity test, and Jesus gives it to us here. It's a simple question. How do you respond to the word of God? When the word of God is presented, how do you respond to it? Do you hear it? Do you understand it? Do you believe it's true? Are you growing in your obedience? And are you increasingly obeying because you love Christ? And it's your life goal to not only please him, but to be like him. That's what real biblical Christianity looks like. And that's what true children of God look like. And it's all a work of God's grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the work of your spirit within us. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is really struggling to know the difference between being religious and being a true child of God, I pray, Lord, that your word and your spirit would bring them under conviction and that you'd lead them to Christ and they find hope and joy and abundant life in him and freedom, freedom from the sin that so desperately enslaves us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.